It was just over 50 years ago that I went to theological college to train for the ministry down in Bristol, um, followed a few years later by Tony, the same place. I'm sure Tony will remember going out on preaching appointments, not only into the city of Bristol, where we have many Methodist churches, but out into the beautiful countryside of Somerset and Gloucestershire and Wiltshire, occasionally even into South Wales, though some people never found their way back from South Wales. It involved a lot of travelling, and in those days it was mainly done by public transport because most of us didn't have cars. We were allowed to wear a dog collar as soon as we went into college. Uh, In fact, I think we were more than allowed. I think we were actually actively encouraged to wear the collar almost as soon as we uh, went to college. And I remember feeling some sense of vulnerability as I travelled out on buses and trains from the city of Bristol Uh, with my collar on, feeling a very fresh parson. Um, Those were the days, of course, when people would often strike up conversation on buses and trains instead of being glued to their mobile phones. Uh, And so I felt vulnerable because I knew that religion was a very popular topic of conversation. And I was quite sure that somebody was going to come up to me or sit next to me on a bus or a train and ask me all sorts of questions that I didn't know the answer to. But they would expect me to know the answer to because I was a member of the clergy. And I would be letting my law down and I would look very foolish. Well, 50 years later, I, I suppose I have a good deal more biblical knowledge and theologi- theological knowledge than I did then but I still don't have the answer to everybody's difficult problems. That will be no surprise to you, I'm sure. But for all of us who are people of faith, who are disciples of Jesus, it's very easy, isn't it, to have that sense of vulnerability. If we think we're going to be quizzed about all sorts of things relating to our faith that we haven't got the answers to, that we can't actually give a satisfactory answer to, that we might get caught out on and that we might let somebody down because we haven't got the right sort of answer. And yet when we turn to the New Testament, we find a huge amount of confidence uh, brimming over in all sorts of ways. It runs through, confidence runs through so many of the pages of the New Testament, especially in the Acts of the Apostles and in the lots of the letters of St. Paul. Confidence and boldness that seem to be the mark of the, the characters that we read about. But of course, that wasn't always the case because the Easter stories open with something that is far from confidence. The Easter stories open with a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty. The story of the close friends of Jesus locking themselves behind uh, doors and thick doors, one imagines, for fear of the Jews, for fear of the fact that the people who crucified Jesus might come and also get them. The story of uh, Mary weeping profusely in the garden, so weeping so much that she couldn't see clearly through her tears. The story of the two people on the walk to Emmaus who were in the depths of despair and couldn't think straight. But of course, reading through the New Testament, we read that these people were transformed from their doubts, their uncertainties and their fears into confidence and certainty. What happened what, to, to change them, of course, was the encounter that they had with the living Lord. They still had their human limitations. They didn't understand everything. But the focus changed from the things that they weren't sure about, and the things that they didn't understand, 
to the things that they had experienced. And it was the things that they had experienced, what they had experienced of an encounter with the living Lord that gave them their confidence. Now, knowing is a theme that runs through that chapter in John's Gospel that Tony read to us a short passage uh, from this morning. In the first half of chapter 10, I think the word know is used six times. It occurs four times in the verses that Tony read. I know my sheep as my father knows me, said Jesus, and my sheep know me as I know the father. And earlier on in the chapter, if we'd read the opening verses, we would have heard that Jesus draws a picture of the good shepherd who leads his sheep here and there. The sheep will follow the shepherd, says Jesus, because they know his voice. And they won't follow a stranger because they don't know his voice. Some years ago, my wife and I were up in uh, uh, Cumbria on holiday. And um, I remember how these words in John's Gospel were brought home to me very clearly. We were walking along the coast one day near one of the bays, very low-lying land. The tide was out, and it was quite safe to walk across that part which would have been water at high tide. And as we walked across that part of the, uh, the bay, so there was a flock of sheep there as well. But as we walked, suddenly a man came out from a cottage on the hill and he shouted and he whistled and immediately the whole flock of sheep moved and they moved from the bay up onto the land onto the hill where the shepherd was we didn't think much about it at the time but about 20 minutes half an hour later we were coming back that way by that time the whole bay had been covered in water it was one of those bays where you know when when it's high tide the water comes in very quickly and when it goes out it goes out very quickly as well and had those sheep stayed there they would have been drowned the shepherd knew when to call them in and they responded because they knew his voice his whistle if i whistled or shouted they wouldn't have moved they knew they knew the word no is a very common word in the bible that word is not about intellectual knowledge, about knowing philosophical facts or having understanding. It's about an experience of, and a relationship with the living God. The Hebrew word to know carries a sense of personal encounter and fellowship that goes beyond just intellectual curiosity. And it's this kind of encounter and relationship that Jesus is talking about when he talks about knowing the Father, the Father knowing him us knowing Jesus and Jesus knowing us. Perhaps the uh, greatest example of a confident person, a person of great conviction in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. But there were many things that he didn't know. There were many things that he didn't have the capacity to explain. He couldn't explain the mystical experience that he'd had on the road to Damascus. He says in one of his letters, I don't know whether I was in the body or whether I was out of the body. He couldn't explain why he had to suffer pain in life. He had some thorn in the flesh and all sorts of biblical scholars have uh, scratched their heads as to what it might have been and nobody knows exactly. But he had something that bugged him in life that he asked God to take away. But he didn't. He says he asked the Lord to take it away 
He didn't know why God didn't remove it. He hadn't got answers to all the questions that people were asking when he went to Athens and when he spoke at the Areopagus, the place of where people went and debated and talked about the latest philosophical ideas and uh, intellectual theories. Paul didn't have the answers and explanations for everything that people wanted to know, but he did know that he'd had an encounter with Jesus Christ, who was very much alive, and that this had changed his life It changed the course of his life from being uh, a person who issued threats and commissioned murder to a a person who was passionate that people might have a relationship with the living God and enjoy life with a capital L. He didn't know why God hadn't answered that prayer for him to take away his pain or his trouble or whatever it was. But he did know that God had given him strength to cope with it. He knew what was most important in life, in the sense, the way that the Bible talks about knowing. He knew that he had a living relationship with a loving God. That kind of knowledge is based on experience, isn't it? It's not about knowing facts. And experience is a word that was used very often by John Wesley in the days of the evangelical revival in the 18th century. Many of the people who were touched by the evangelical revival weren't people of great intellect. They wouldn't have had the ability to write an academic dissertation about their faith in God. And indeed, many of the early Methodist preachers weren't the sort of people who would have won an argument in the debating chambers of Oxford or Cambridge universities. But they certainly had an experience of God at work in their lives, having touched them and changed them and guiding them. One of our Methodist scholars, uh, Henry Bett, who was writing about the importance of experience, put it like this. He says the vital things of religion are not, first of all, intellectual issues. And a great revival like Methodism was naturally concerned in the first place with the redemptive facts and redemptive experiences. Knowing God, it's not about knowing facts. It is about experiencing the change that he brings to our lives. And it was because the early Methodists were primarily concerned with people's salvation that they came to stress the importance of personal experience. Now, of course, we have to be a little bit careful about experience because experience can be a very subjective thing. It can be skewed by somebody with an inflated ego, It can be wildly off course if somebody has serious mental health problems. All sorts of wild and extravagant claims can be made. And there are people around who claim to have had all sorts of odd experiences. And sometimes we talk about them as being religious fruit and nut cases. Very often more nutty than fruity, I have to say. But a genuine experience of God working in our lives can be seen in action that bears fruit. And... uh, transforms lives and transforms communities in a positive way. Some of you may have uh, read a biography of John Wesley that was written some years ago by Roy Hattersley. And Roy Hattersley wrote not as somebody who was a committed Christian from uh, a religious and a faith point of view. He wrote as a politician and somebody who was interested in social matters and society. 
But at the end of this biography, which is extremely well researched about John Wesley, he concludes with these words. He says, Wesley was one of the architects of modern England and John Wesley's second reformation created a new church and helped to build a new nation. These are the fruits of genuine experience, the genuine experience of the living, loving God who works and are of great benefit to society. And at the heart of what we are called to be convinced about and to share with other people as Christian men and women is our experience. Not what we know intellectually about God, which is likely to be very limited, but what God has done in our lives, what we have seen him do in our communities. And so let me be personal again just for a minute. Just let me return to where I started. Some of you will read the big issue magazine, I'm sure, uh, sold by homeless people on the streets. You'll know that often in that big issue magazine, there's an interview with somebody who's invited to write a letter to their younger self when they were in their teens or their early 20s. So what advice would I give to my 19 or 20-year-old self Uh, feeling rather vulnerable in case somebody was to catch me out on all sorts of theological issues that I couldn't possibly explain or uh, discover my ignorance of the Bible, some part that I really ought to know. What would I say? Well, I think I would say this. Don't be frightened of the things that you don't know and of all the things that you don't understand about God. But just speak with confidence about those things that you know that God has done and has changed in your life. And if I took that advice, I know that I could now say with conviction and with certainty that I know Christ lives because without his presence in my life, I would have been an incredibly selfish person. I'm still quite a selfish person at times, as I'm sure my wife and a few other people in the family would tell you, Uh, but I'm not anywhere near as selfish as I would have been had Christ not been at work in my life, bringing some changes and moulding me. I could say with certainty and with conviction that I know Christ lives because he has guided me through life and provided for me in all sorts of ways that I could never have foreseen and I didn't even realise would be necessary. And certainly I could never have provided for myself had I been steering the ship of my life. And I could say with authority and certainty, I know that Christ lives because he challenged me to do all sorts of things as a Christian and also as a minister in leadership in the church, things that I could possibly not have done without his help because they're just not within my nature or my temperament. These are some of the things that I could say from personal experience. And the things that as you sit here this morning, you could say with personal experience that you know that God has done in your life. And I encourage you to look at your life and see what experiences you have had of God working in your life. And of course, if we want a role model for this kind of faith, the faith that is confident because of experience, we could hardly do better than to go just one chapter back in John's Gospel 
to chapter 9 where we have that long story and saga and then conversation and dialogue about the man born blind whom Jesus healed. Blind from birth, he's healed by Jesus and given sight and then he's subjected to a barrage of questioning by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Who is this man? Is he the Christ? Is he a sinner? How can he do these things? And of course the man who was blind was baffled. He plainly has no answers to all these theological experts. But his reply is simple. One thing I know. I was blind. Now I see. And that reply was clarity itself. So briefly, in conclusion, let me say three things. First of all, don't be disheartened or get overwhelmed in your life as a Christian because of the many things that you don't know or the many things that you're not sure of. Secondly, focus on the experiences that you have, that you've had in life of God working very positively in your life, the things that you can say with certainty and with conviction. And thirdly, remember that John Wesley urged his followers to keep diaries or write down some of the stories about their experiences of the ways that God has been at work in their lives. Now there's a very practical suggestion that might encourage us to be confident so that we can say with the Apostle Paul in the words of the reading that we had earlier on in our service this morning, I know in whom I have believed. And that's something that you may already do, writing down stories. But uh, if not, it's an idea and a challenge which is well worth thinking about. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are many people who want proof and who demand powerful arguments about your existence and the ways of your working. And sometimes as your followers, we feel very inadequate to speak for you. But you have been at work in our lives in many ways. And we thank you and we bless you for that. And so help us to reflect on what we have experienced of your love and goodness and power in our lives And give us that confidence to share the good news of your living presence with others. For we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.